A reading from 2 Samuel. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from mine enemies. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him a canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. He reached from on high. He took me. He drew me out of mighty waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They came upon me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who has girded me with strength has opened wide my path. He has made my feet like the feet of deer and set me secure on the heights. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. And exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above my adversaries. You delivered me from the violent. For this, I will extol you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. 
Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, this song that's included about David's life, that we might understand it and might understand how we might sing it ourselves and appropriate it into our own life and our own community as we seek to be followers of Jesus. So meet us, we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit in this time, in Jesus' name, uh, amen. So one of the hazards of being a religious professional is this, is that people have uh, a perception of your life that is incongruent with your real life. I mean, honestly, they, they sort of, they, so I've had these experiences. When I was in seminary years ago, we had, we were, I had sort of taken on the task of redoing our sofa. I was going to upholstery it. Did I know anything about upholstery? No, I knew nothing. But I ripped everything off the thing. We had some fabric, and I was good to go. And Stacy was, you know, shocked. And I'm like, well, I'm going to get someone else to do the cushion, because I, I don't do cushions. So I go to this little dude in, in Ambler, this old, old man um, in Ambler, and uh, go into his shop. It's a gnarly little shop, and he's doing this thing. He's talking, and he's, you know, letting rip all of these like words, you know, that are like, I, I won't even say they were curse words. They were like worse than curse words, right? And so here I am, we're just having this engagement, right? And, and all of a sudden, he, he lets loose this other question. So what do you do? I'm, I'm in seminary studying to be a pastor. And immediately, whoom, shame all over his face, three shades of red, and he's just immediately, all he can do is just apologize all over the place. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I said, it, it, it's okay. I'm just a person. You know, I'm a person. When we moved to New York City, we uh, were in our building, and, and we were getting to know some of the folks in the building. There was a couple on the first floor, and we thought they were pretty interesting and cool people. We enjoyed We had them up for dinner one night, and then, and then the, the, the husband says to Stacy one evening, he says, you know, I, you're, you're not like a pastor's wife that I would have thought about. Like, you don't fit the mold that I had. It, so, so here's the thing, right? The, when people begin to think about what does it mean to be a Christian or what does it mean to be a spiritual person or someone who has a, a, a vibrant or real, a substantial life with God, right? They have all of these unreal notions of what that means like. Now, sometimes Christians have, we've done a whole lot of things that help people have those really uh, unrealistic notions of what we're like, right? Because we, we present a facade or we're afraid to talk about our brokenness or we're hesitant to acknowledge our real selves, our real stories, and the complexities of our stories. But the reality is there's something very deeply incongruent with the way many people think about what it might mean to be a Christian, what it might mean to take Jesus seriously, and with the way most of us actually live our lives as Christians, right? That we know the complexities of our story. So when Eugene Peterson is writing about in his, in his uh, reflections on the life of David, his subtitle is something like this. I'm, I'm probably not remembering exactly right, but it's like earthy spirituality for ordinary people, right? That's his subtitle for David's life. And as we've read through David's story, uh, that you re begin to recognize, right, that there's something profoundly ordinary about David's story, that it's not a, a story of moral perfection by any stretch of the imagination. He's not a great guy in many episodes and chapters and moments of his own life and his own story, and we've read some of those moments, right? He was not a, he was not a great husband. He was not always a great king. He didn't use power well. He, uh, he wasn't a great father, right? We, you saw that a little bit with Absalom's story last week, right? So there's, there's nothing about David's life that is being set forward as exemplary except perhaps one thing, and that is that he is a life that circles back and circles back to a real life with God. 
That's what he does. Uh, Eugene Peterson, I, I shared this quote at the very beginning of the series when we, when we started off at the beginning of the summer. I'm going to re, re, return to it now as a bit of a bookend. He writes this. He says, David as an instance of humanity in himself isn't much. And that is profoundly hopeful, right? He isn't much. Uh, he has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't his morality or his military prowess, but his experience of and witness to God. Every event of his life was a confrontation with God. And that's what it means to be an ordinary spiritual person. That's what it means to live an ordinary human life is to have it in confrontation with God, to somehow be connected to God, to circle back and back and back yet again. So David's story becomes really a window through which we're meant to see this confrontation with God so that maybe the readers in Israel at the time, the readers in the church today, or anybody that picks up David's story would say to themselves, well, you know, what would it be like for me and for us together to take God's presence seriously. Like, what would that look like? That's a spiritual life, right? And so we see that in this concluding song or psalm that's included here in chapter 22. The editors included it. Uh, it, it may be a repeat or an adaptation from Psalm 18, or it may be something. You know, it's, it's repeat. There's, a, there's another example of it, of the same, some similar words in Psalm 18. But this is a hymn that the, uh, the, the editor of 1 and 2 Samuel sort of situates as he nears the end of the story he's telling. If you think back, if you, if you sort of read through Samuel, the Samuel uh, books together, you would notice that at the beginning, there's a similar psalm. There's Hannah's psalm, right, which is her own celebration of God's greatness and goodness. And now as a capstone or as a bookend to the whole of the story that, uh, that's, that is being told here, we circle back to this song that celebrates the presence and the greatness of God. And as if it were to say that, the, that what's really important for us here to, to sort of lodge in, you're not just reading a biography of David. It's not like you picked up the biography of some great American hero. You read, a story, you read you know, Abraham Lincoln's biography. You read uh, Michelle Obama's story. You read, you know, whatever. You, you, you pick up these stories, right? But here, what we're being t told is something greater than the story itself is happening, it's a part of this greater story, and that's the story of God. Theologian Robert Jensen says that theology is reasoned talk about God, and that's exactly what's happening in this particular section in 2 Samuel. We're being invited into this reasoned conversation about God to think about who he is in the life of David uh, and to get behind the story of David in some sense and just recognize his life story, all of these events, all of these ups and down moments, all of these happy moments, these glorious moments that feel like, I would like to be like that, and all of the moments when you're like, whoa, behind all of it is a God who is present and who is doing something to move the story of his kingdom forward. And we get to be a part of that. It's a beautiful thing. So let's think about um, this, this, uh, this song for just a moment. 
<clears throat> and I want to think about it sort of through three lenses. So God's greatness, David's greatness, and our own hope. So God's greatness, David's greatness, and our hope. So first, God's greatness, uh, his goodness, his presence. The song just floods out with this really bold celebration of God, right? Verse 2, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. It's also worth noting that you know, this is poetic expression, and so we're meant to be sort of drawn in to the emotion of what's happening here. We're not just meant to sort of didactically be reading some factoids about God's presence. We're meant to sort of be sucked into the reality of his presence so that our own eyes open up and we see that God is with us. And that God is with us as one who delights in us and who is great and who hears us and who is near us. That's exactly what we're meant to say. So, so God, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, verse 3, David says, I take refuge in this fortress, God, right? I take refuge in him. He is a shield about me. He is the, the horn of my salvation. He's a stronghold. He saves me from violence. David's life is in conversation with God who is near him. David saw God's presence as both good and great and as something that is leveraged for him, toward him, for his good, because God delights in him. God is present to deliver David across all the different moments of life. And if you think back to the different episodes and chapters of David's life that we've been reading over the summer, you recognize that in the moments when he's in the wilderness, there's an awareness of God's presence that allows him not to sort of usurp kingship. There are moments in his life when he sort of boldly sinned, right, Bathsheba, Uriah, there are moments when David is brought into a moment of being able to acknowledge horrific things about himself and his own behavior. Why? Because God is present to him. God's presence allows us to confess sin. Not in fear, but in courage and in confidence because God is present as one who forgives us and who empowers us and who lifts us to a new space. That's why we confess sin, not because we feel bad about ourselves and not because, you know, it's, sort of, it's not a moment of sort of dissolving into a puddle of shame. If that's how you approach a moment of confessing sin, of owning wrongdoing, then you have not done so in the presence of the real God. David imagines God as one who hears him, who listens in on his prayers, and who isn't just listening from a distance, but this is the God who bows the heavens and comes down. In other words, God gets near David in his situation, in his life circumstance, to deliver David. And that's the picture that he's drawing us into, the experience that he's drawing us into, that this song draws Israel into and now draws us into. His life is framed within this steady relationship with God, a relational context in which he is securely attached to God as his foundation. Did you feel that as we were singing that wonderful hymn, How Firm a Foundation? Did you hear the invitation to take refuge in Jesus as your foundation? God's greatness, his attachment to God, liberates David to take the risk of being a real human being in the world, to play, 
to be in the world as a king as he was, to be in the world as you know, a king in exile as he sometimes was, to be in the world as a husband in a moment of love, but also in a moment of profound failure, and to be a father in a moment of love and embrace, but also in a moment when he's like, I, my love failed. I did not love well. God's presence in his life liberating David to be different. The big picture of his life that the author wants us to sort of take away is that David lived life with God, and that's the point. God is with him. So here's a little way of applying this part of this this song. If you were to put a song over your own life, what would it be like? What would you say? What would you lead out with? What would be the metaphors, the themes that would sort of surface in those first verses of the song that you're writing about your life? Would it be about the greatness of God? Would it be that you're a person who's aware that God is present in your world, that he's present to your life? Or are you still on the other side of that question? Are you still sort of curious? Are you doubting? Are you unsure of God's nearness? Are you unsure of how he's close to your life in a place of suffering or in a place of joy? But maybe that's a way of thinking about how we ought to apply it. Is God present to us? Is he near us? And if he's near, is he near us as someone who's just angry with you because you, you have messed up your life? Or is he near you as someone who says, I have an imagination for your life that you don't yet understand, but I invite you into that. And I want to lift you into that space. How do you imagine God who shows up in his world and in your life and in your real circumstances? That's what this song invites us to. In this very first part of the song where David grasped that God is a rock, I am not the rock. My spouse is not the rock. My kids aren't the rock. My colleagues aren't the rock. But God is the rock. God is the fortress. So, the greatness of God, David begins there. Now, second, David's greatness. This is like sections 21 to 31. We didn't actually look at all of it. We didn't read the entirety of this whole, this whole section. Uh, but but uh, there's some things we need to draw out here. And these are some of the most confusing parts of this particular song because this is where David says things that feel incredibly incongruent with the story that we know, right? You've read his story, right? I've read his story. You've listened in on his story. And how could you come through a story like this debacle of parenthood that, that, and, and even kingship that the story of Absalom represents? How do you come through that chapter and say something like, God rewards me according to my righteousness. Like, seriously. I mean, can you imagine if you're in Israel, you've gathered for worship, and, the, and this part of the scripture is being read? You know, it's being read, and you're listening to it, and you're thinking, whoa, 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 I, I don't. This makes no sense. Your life is a train wreck, dude. How do you use words like righteousness and blameless to attach to, to your description of self? Like, what's going on there, right? Did you... Did you feel that when you say that? Because most of us, like, we're not, we're not claiming to be like David. None of us are really, right? Um, and some of that's for good reasons, some of that's for bad reasons, but we're not imagining that we're like David. But, but you're, if we were to have a one-on-one conversation, I'd say, hey, tell me about yourself. You know, I'd say, I am blameless. Because the moment you say, I am blameless, what is Tuck the pastor going to say? Um, can we explore that word a little bit and, like, what that means? Like, what, what's that all about? 
can we talk about that a little bit more? <laughs> can we get into the nitty gritty of your story, right? And I'm not going to use those words about myself. Why? Because I know my story. I know the secret things. You know your secret things. You know the parts of your story that you hide not only from God, but from other people. At least you attempt to. We don't use that language to speak of ourselves. Very rarely, unless we're in some space of disorientation. So what does David mean? Walter Brueggemann observes that there are three, sort of three ways that he sort of imagines we could sort this out. He says, you might come at this perhaps a little bit cynically and you say, ah, I know what this is. This is like that moment when a king, a despot, sort of uses ideological propaganda to sort of prop up their kingdom, right? And we don't actually have to look very far into our own political world to see how we use language of righteousness and rightness and perfection to sort of prop ourselves up in front of everyone as if we were the thing, we're equal to God, maybe even better than God. He says, secondly, there's, a, there's like a worst case scenario, like cynicism, you know, ideological propaganda, many of us know how to sort of read through, right? You get that. We know that happens. We know how that's used. We recognize that, that disorder and that falseness. But, but the second thing would be something like this, a worst case scenario he suggests is that maybe David actually means... God, you owe me. Have you ever lived in relation to God as if he owed you? I was reflecting on something in my own story in my life the other day, and I was thinking about how I relate to some people, and I just sort of jotted down in my, in my journal. I said, you know, Tuck, sometimes you live as if people owe you. Do you ever do that? Do you relate to people out of your sense of being a victim? And so whenever you meet someone that you don't perceive to be a victim, they owe you. God, you owe me. Is that what David's doing here? Is he sort of in this really absurd way saying, God, you owe me. My righteousness demands your engagement. Probably not. The more likely scenario he suggests is that these words actually fit the story we've read and the tensions that we've read about in David's life. And so this is really a reference not so much to David's blamelessness, but maybe uh, verse 24 is a different kind of way of expressing a sense of wholeness and integrity of relationship. That what David takes refuge in is not sort of what, how God owes him. It's not political propaganda, but it's this, the integrity of a relationship. I've been married 30 years, and I've had children at least 26 years. How does Connor? I'm thinking through my mind. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've had children. I've had, I've had friendships that have lasted quite a long time, and you've had similar experiences in life. You've got close friends. What does the integrity in your relationship with people look like? What does it look like? Do you walk around feeling like they owe you? Not a lot of integrity in that kind of a, of, a, of a relationship or a demand. Do you walk around sort of puffing yourself up and telling your story in the best possible light so that everybody sort of is awed by you? Not a great way to have a relationship, by the way, right? No, not at all. 
Or do you live in the integrity of a relationship that includes this back and forth of getting to know each other in repentance and faith and owning problems and acknowledging sorrowful moments and then learning to put on new behaviors of love that actually liberate the other person and fit the persons they are in the situation that they're in? How do you live in these spaces? Maybe what's really happening here is that this language that's being used is an appeal to the fact that David lived a life that just circled back over and over again to God. There's a wholeness to his life. One commentator suggests that verse 24 is the key, actually, and the word that we translate, blamelessness, actually speaks less of perfection and more of the wholeness and integrity of relationship. Maybe that's what's happening here, that amidst all of these ups and downs, these bold, sort of horrible moments of moral failure, uh, that David just comes back into the conversation with God. He doesn't hold God here forever, but he circles back into this engagement with God, coming back to the story that God is telling and narrating with David's life. There's a tension in our efforts to live with God, but very much like the prodigal son, a true spirituality, an honest spirituality, ordinary, earthly spirituality, is that you find yourself in these horrible moments of spaces of being destitute even, but you remember what it was like in the Father's house. And so you run back knowing that it is the Father who will receive you, who loves you, because the relationship isn't dependent upon your greatness. Does what you did matter? Yes, it absolutely matters. The choices we make in life matter. The choices we make in life have real earthly consequences to them. But God graces us with his presence and his relationship, and he says, the story as it might naturally end is not your ending. It is different because of my love. David circles back to that. And the beauty of this, I think, is just this, that when you know God that way, it liberates you to be a human being differently. It liberates you to take the risk of love. It liberates you to take the risk of repentance. It liberates you to take the risk of honesty. It liberates you to play in your life. In verse 30, we didn't read this particular verse, but it's a really playful, beautiful verse. He says, I can leap over a wall. Now, that's like a kid, right? I can leap over a wall. Imagine that, like you're a kid. I can leap over a wall. But he goes on to say, it is because of God's presence in my life that I can leap over a wall. Have you ever thought about God that way? That it is his love that enables you to experiment with being a human being. It is his presence as one who loves you that enables your sad story and your joyful story to unite in his story so that you figure out how do I take the risk of being a human being? You know, when we were born into the world, we knew nothing, right? I mean, you, you've seen babies, right? You've seen babies. There are some around. Look at them this morning, right? I mean, seriously, they know nothing when they come into this world. All they begin to do is to have these experimental moments with a mom, a dad, other caregivers, 
who respond to them, right? And sometimes it's a response because they're overtired. And sometimes it's a response because they're hungry. And sometimes it's a response, you know, because they've got a wet diaper or a poopy diaper. And, you know, this is what children do in the world. And the caregivers around them are what? They're responding. You know what happens in that moment? We develop ways of attaching to our caregivers, right? Because neurobiologically, we're connecting with someone that assures us in a moment that it's safe for me to be a month old. It's safe for me to be three months old. It's safe for me to be 12 months old. It's safe for me to be, and so you experience the world in this context in which someone or some persons circle back to you and they see you. They soothe you. They create some context of safety for you that does what? That allows you to become a grown-up who takes risks, who does hard things, who puts yourself out there in the world in a, in a way. And what, what David seems to be describing, I think, is that we're meant to have that kind of attachment to God. We're meant to know that he's near us in such a way so that we can take the risk of being a human being of trying on this or that thing or this or that experience, of testing out this gift or this talent or this bit of knowledge that we have, of sticking with a PhD program like Alex did, you know? I mean, whatever. Why? Because God is with you. And you can take the risk of being a human being and trying these things on and playfully figuring out what does it mean for you to be you. That's the picture that we're being given here of this kind of life-giving relationship with God. Verse 33, this God who has girded me with strength and opened wide my path. When you think about your spiritual life with God, or you think about the spirituality that's at play in your life, does God open wide your path? Robert Alter translates this, and he says, he has freed my way to be blameless. God opens up humanity to you in his love, what would it be like for you to hold on to that reality this week when you're in the different circumstances you're going to be in? Some of them good, some of them bad. Moments when things go your way, moments when they don't. Sometime when someone hurts you in some profound way, what would it be look like to remember in the midst of whatever you experience, whatever newsfeed you hear about, whatever tweet you read, that you remember God is the God who is moving his kingdom forward and you're a part of it. He delights in you. He loves you. He loves us. God becomes the relationally wide path through which we take the risk of being a human being. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that you understand who God is and particularly how he is showing us who he is and the person of who Jesus is. And we begin to get into the wide path of that relationship and we figure out what does it mean to retell my story now because of who I know God to be and who I know him to be for me. God's greatness, our greatness, and now finally our hope. All of this, of course, in David's life, it unfolds at a particular moment of time. It reflects all the brokenness of his day. David talks a lot about war. We may not like the talk of war, right? But, and, and, and David, in many ways, as we've said, is far from the end of all that God is doing. Far, far from the end of it. But in verse 50, 
the song concludes and anchors the imagination of Israel as they would have heard this, this read or sung, as we hear it read and sung, it anchors us in a God who has made promises about the future and about his coming kingdom. God will stick to his promise to bring his kingdom. He'll be faithful to David's descendants forever. Peterson says that if we ignore or deny God, it, does, it doesn't make us bad. It makes us small and puny. It doesn't make us bad. It makes us small and puny and stingy. David's life, in contrast, was a life of, that was God-affirming. It was a God-affirmed life. His life was large and expansive because he understood who God was and what's being invited to Israel here in this moment and to us as we read the same story is just this. Can you see how God is present and active in moving the story forward? And ultimately, moving the story forward in the person of Jesus. He's the one we're invited to take refuge in God's promise to David about his kingdom and about his descendants finds its fullest expression and revelation in the person of who Jesus is. And so we're invited just very simply to see that, to recognize that, to see that the kind of kingdom that you read about when you read the gospel story, that's the kind of kingdom you want to be a part of. The way he interacted with people, that's the way you want to interact with people. You tell them the truth, you speak love to them, you want their best, you you help those that are in need. You move towards circumstances of brokenness in order to lift them out of brokenness. That's what we do. That's what God does. That's what Jesus did. And it's the invitation to us as we seek to live out our own humanity. Peterson says this. He said, David, with all the rough edges, he never got around to loving enemies the way his descendant Jesus would do it. His morals and manners left a lot to be desired these aren't narrated as blemishes, but as conditions that we share. It's easy to read parts of David's story and say, I'm not like that. But what do you share in his story? The broken parts, the hard parts. He says they aren't narrated to legitimize bad behavior, but they are set down as proof that we don't first become good and then get God. First we get God and then over a patient lifetime, we're trained in God's ways. Over a patient lifetime, we are trained in God's ways. You know, part of the reason that we think community groups are so important, and part of the reason that we think showing up for worship is so important, or hanging out in a courtyard, uh, having tacos together is so important, or getting to know a friend over coffee is, is so important, is that being a Christian is finding your life story coming back together in a way that surprises you. The story you grew up with isn't the only thing or narrative that's happening in your life. So getting close to one another where we become spiritual friends with one another and we help each other understand and remember that God moves towards us in love when I'm most suspicious of God's presence as a loving presence. I need my neighbor, I need my sister, I need my brother, I need my friend to be near me and to say, Tuck, I think you're forgetting part of the story. I think you're blocking God out of the picture. And this is why 
being a part of the church and not just living as sort of a solo Christian somewhere, as if that were possible, is, is so important, but it's being near one another so that we have more of Jesus, not less. So that we grow up into this wide plane of our existence with God, and we take the risk of trying on being human differently than we tried it on yesterday. That's what we're called to do patient lifetime of being trained in the ways of God, turning incrementally, aiming at this authentic life with Jesus. That's what we want. In our gospel reading this morning, as we read it, reminds us that ultimately the glory of God is revealed most fully in Jesus himself, who waged a very different kind of warfare than David waged and who shows us that God is a self-donated, a self-giving God who takes death into himself and who rises into new life and who declares over the life of the risen Jesus that this is the kind of humanity that will go on and last forever. You know, you walk through parts of Philadelphia and you see a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness. And some of you are very immersed in literacy needs and you're very immersed in some of the needs that the poorest parts of our city experience, the places that are most excluded from any experience of justice. And you get near those parts of the story inside of Philadelphia or more particularly inside of someone's particular experience of injustice. And you know what? It can crush you. How do you stay afloat? How do you hold on? How do you do that work of getting near brokenness like that when you feel so absolutely powerless? I think the only answer is this answer. It is that we do these things because God is doing these things first. And God promises that in the doing of these things, that one day, because he has raised Jesus up from the dead, that is the reality that will endure forever. And so the church is a community of people that aren't afraid of poverty. We're not afraid of brokenness. We're not afraid of the worst that's in our own stories, in our own lives. And we're not afraid of the worst that's in our city or even in our world. And we're willing to take the risk of showing love the way Jesus showed love. God delights in you. God delights in our world. And he is pulling the threads of all that is in our world to a beautiful conclusion of a kingdom that has come and will come fully in which all of human life, regardless of their earthly experiences, will experience flourishing. That's the aim of history. And we're a part of that story because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us as we continue in our worship this morning. Would you just remind us again and again and again of your greatness? And would you invite us again and again and again into a right expression of our own greatness as we take up our hope in you, and particularly the way you've manifest that hope in the person of who Jesus is. Meet us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. The offering is a time when we think on God's grace, his love for us, his mercy. We